You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I don't know if I would call it my favorite, but one of my most interesting story was working with outside counsel and compliance uh, on behalf of manufacturing company involving subsidiaries and uh, potential questionable payments to vendors. We we had to go undercover, flew in overnight, uh, rode into this this uh, large facility, grabbed everyone's hard drives, their laptops, you know started doing our computer imaging at the time. It was crazy. We had a uh, hiding out in secretive hotel rooms in a hostile country. Pretty dangerous stuff. I might, I, I think my wife would laugh if she, uh, maybe not laugh, but she would be concerned if she knew how dangerous some of the circumstances were. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. Happy New Year. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and it feels good to be back after a nice break over the holidays, honestly. It's always good to recharge the batteries a little bit, and hopefully you were able to do the same. And to kick off 2021, we're going to jump right into the deep end and talk about regulatory compliance. Not the simplest of conversations, but I think we're all going to get a lot of information out of it. And talk about what you really need to know as this new year kicks off. Anyone who works for the government or does business with the government knows that the public sector is one of the most regulated industries on the planet. If you do a simple Google search for government compliance, you'll find listing after listing, especially after the year we just had. In 2020, it was a very significant year for regulatory compliance. Not only was it the year with the single highest anti-bribery fine ever, but there were significant enforcement actions, fines, and penalties assessed against corporations, coupled with a large number of individual prosecutions. One of the areas I've focused on lately has been around data privacy, and a lot of the rules that have been installed are designed specifically to ensure data protection. Poor data breach compliance processes can hurt any organization and be a threat to national security. With the frequency of data breaches continuing to increase, governments are placing more trust in the organizations they work with to ensure they're following the correct protocols. And while you probably don't live and breathe this world every day, it's still an important piece of what we do because these certifications either are prerequisites for doing business with the government, like FedRAMP, FISMA, or CMMC in the US, or they're driving our business strategies, like NARA's M1921 records management policy or the presidential management agenda. So today, I've asked Andy Tischholz, the head of industry strategy for compliance and legal at OpenText, to join us and discuss some of these measures you need to be familiar with. He has over 20 years of experience in the legal and compliance industry as a litigator, in-house counsel, consultant, and technology provider. His role focuses on helping businesses succeed with digital transformation by acting as an advisor to customers on regulatory compliance, information governance, and data privacy issues as well as support complex litigation and regulatory investigations. I think he also has some fun stories he can share with us from his days as a litigator and a consultant, which should be fun. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting today. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you being on. And uh, let me start off by saying I I know 2020 was a, a rough year for a lot of people, but 
beyond just the pandemic and, and social issues, you really struggled personally with the New England Patriots and Michigan Wolverines, I know. Hey, this is unusual territory for me. Well, at least I would say on the New England Patriots side, maybe the maybe the Wolverines have disappointed their fan base for a little bit longer than than I had hoped. I remember Brian back in the days when I was an undergraduate in Ann Arbor and we were going to the Rose Bowl, I think 3 out of 4 years. So it's a, a little steady times and unfortunately I feel like 2021 didn't necessarily get off to the best best start either. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I'll be honest with you from a compliance and legal perspective I'm really excited in terms of what I anticipate uh, in uh, in areas like consumer rights uh, protections greater regulation in areas that I think need to be more thoroughly regulated by this new administration coming in so I'm very excited yeah. about that. And I think it's a great example of how when I talk about citizen services, it's really talking around consumer-driven expectations, setting the standard for what some of the policies and and what government needs to do to keep up with that. So I think that's a, a good example. And you have a really unique role at Open Text. I'm I'm lucky enough to be on your team and, and work with you day in day out. Appreciate that. Um, but it's it's a role that I think organizations, if they don't have it right now, will start to build out because these compliance measures have really been proliferating uh, vertically and horizontally across industries. Um, and it's it's something that organizations need to align to, but also driving strategy around how they can sell and work with the government. So why don't you talk about your role and how you're working with customers in this capacity? Absolutely. So you are absolutely correct, Brian. The role has many different facets to it. Um, I'll kind of try to break it down real quick. You know, one, one of my roles and coming from a legal and compliance background is to work with our stakeholders, you know, whether that's marketing, whether it's uh, sales or other field level uh, leaders within an organization on what regulations are out there, talk about the intelligence around regs and compliance standards, and then focus on those regulations and standards in terms of their impact, both vertically, right, with the with the vertical industries, and also horizontally. Um, when you talk horizontally, I focus a lot on our cross-portfolio, right, across business unit marketing story around our compliance initiatives. And I look at our value proposition, Brian, um, how OpenText offers uh, capabilities and solutions that support regulatory and standards compliance. So I look at things from risk management uh, to supply chain governance, data privacy, uh, record keeping requirements, and how our organization either has products that meet certain compliance standards or helps organizations meet those standards. And I focus on that theme as well as looking at those standards and certifications and understanding what we need to do as an organization to ensure that we can support our clients' needs and our customers' needs. Yeah, and I remember when you came to OpenText, it was actually um, to do a similar role, but to support specifically legal technology. And it kind of metamorphosized into this compliance and regulatory role. Um, but you also have a role in in legal as well. Can you tell tell me a little bit about your background legal-wise and kind of how, how you've blended that legal background and the technology background to really create this perfect storm of the compliance and regulatory role? Well, that's a great, that's a great great way of, of introducing what I my my historical background. So, I've had a lot of experiences over the years that really shape 
the way that I work with the legal industry. Um, I started as an attorney. So Brian, I did uh, class action security uh, litigation on the plaintiff side for a number of years, uh, went in-house for a small business startup. So I got involved in general counsel work, managing uh, legal operations, managing teams, uh, focusing on also supporting and leading our litigation efforts within the organization. And then over time, I, I was heavily involved in business development. And I was approached by an e-discovery company that was one of the leading uh, application service providers back, I think it was like the early 2000s. And they wanted me to come in, do some business development. And I ultimately got very interested in the nuts and bolts and the consultative side of e-discovery, both in terms of compliance investigations. And that kind of moved me along my path. I ended up uh, working at a large specialized consultancy in New York, where I was one of the leaders in the uh, disputes and investigations practice out of New York um, and did a, a whole host of really interesting reactive work and even some proactive work around litigation readiness and compliance readiness that kind of put me to where I am today. And and some of those some of those uh, pieces you were discussing are actually work for the government, right? Oh yeah, I have I have some good stories. Um, I when I was in my investigative role, I did a number of a uh, number of engagements uh, for the government. Um, a couple of interesting ones. I I worked on uh, one engagement with the FCC and the DOJ that involved a lot of video review. Um, it, it led actually to the indictments issued to a whole host of companies and individuals on counts of submission of false claims and and wire fraud. So real, really interesting. I had a whole team set up. We we did a lot of investigation. You know, some of our capabilities back then were a little more primitive, so we had a little bit more manual processes and going through information and working with those teams to construct the story. It was a, a great experience. I I spent a bulk of my career, Brian, when I was doing um, disputes and investigation support work around FCPA investigations. So I had <laughs> I have a number number of stories there. We um. One of one of my I don't know if I would call it my favorite, but one of my most interesting story was working with outside counsel and compliance uh, on behalf of manufacturing company involving subsidiaries and uh, potential questionable payments to vendors. We we had to go undercover, flew in overnight, uh, rode into this this uh, large facility, grabbed everyone's hard drives, their laptops, you know started doing our computer imaging at the time. It was crazy. We had a uh, hiding out in secretive hotel rooms in a hostile country. Uh, <laughs> pretty dangerous stuff. I might, I, I think my wife would laugh if she, uh, maybe not laugh, but she would be concerned if she knew how dangerous some of the circumstances were for us. But, you know, we, when you're dealing with that kind of effort and some, you know, nefarious players and hostels, it makes for some interesting stories. So yeah, I've, I've done a lot of things there. And then on the flip side, maybe not as quite as sexy, but working in that capacity also gave me a greater appreciation of sort of infrastructure and operations and how businesses work and ways to be more efficient. So I, I, I did a lot of work, Brian, on assessing companies in terms of their risk, their operational profile. And improving the way they managed their operations and looked at things like information governance and data privacy. Um, 
in, in that effort. Did, did a lot of that work also where I, I spent some time at IBM, where I was an implementation leader on the information governance side. So I have a lot of broad experience that gets me where I am today. Uh, legal technology, compliance, information governance, these are all areas where I spend a lot of time with looking at processes, use cases, and understanding how technology can help support those kinds of problems. Yeah, I'm guessing if you were working back and forth with the government in the early 2000s, these weren't uh, digital paper records you were <laughs> you were funneling through, right? It's funny. Uh, I, I, you know, better than you would have thought, Brian. Uh, in some instances, we were a little bit more set up. I'm thinking you just kind of raised, raised a, I got chills just thinking about it. But I remember back in the law firm days, in the pre-e-discovery days, I was in a large conference room with boxes and boxes of paper, right? And we were like coding and reviewing this information manually. God, I'm dating myself. I'm not so young anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. But we would we would do that. And the, I mean, it was insane. Now everyone's doing it remotely. They're on their computers. They're, they're efficient reviews. They're tagging information. But I, I do remember those primitive days. And I think at the time... That was, you know, the games changed so much. You can be so much more efficient and get to information rapidly. Uh, it's really totally revolutionized the way we do work. But you're you're right, and and in working with the government, like I said before, with the videos, that that created a whole host of different ways of review. There are platforms today that that allow you to, you know, review or do you know text to speech automation, things are much more rapid today. And, I, and and when I do sit in my legal role and think about those stories and those use cases and how to support those needs, I do look at what open text products, you know, can fit, fit those needs. Yeah, they, they didn't really have artificial intelligence <laughs> driving that e-discovery no. process back then. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. No. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm picturing somebody coming out of college and walking into a conference room with folders and boxes and just saying I quit. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. These days, I don't think it would happen. And I know and I know we're here more to talk about compliance, but you know, the legal industry has always been sort of a slow adopter. So there, there well, are- government too. So I think that, I think there's a good, no, I'm, I'm serious. There's a good kind of uh, symbiotic partnership there. There you go. No, so you understand that that issue. And oftentimes you find yourself, especially people like us, right, who've been playing in some of the more uh, advanced technology that's out there today, right, and deploying with customers in that regard, you're still finding a lot of the customers needing the most basic needs, right, to digitization needs and advancement in that direction. So it's, it is fascinating because you find it from all levels of maturity, right, within these companies and these businesses. Yeah. And so one of the things that, from a government perspective, that the pandemic was actually a, a positive for and, and really catalyzed was uh, growth within digital transformation. And they went from being these laggards in technology to uh, almost in a draconian sense, having to adopt some of these some of these emerging technologies to be able to keep up with um, what the needs are of their citizens, of their stakeholders, et cetera. Absolutely, yeah. And, and then from a compliance standpoint, um, what what trends and challenges are you seeing from a digital transformation perspective? Yeah, it's great that you asked me that question. I, I mean, one of the one of the things that that in, that I'm involved in is looking at things from a cross industry perspective. So there are a number of different trends driving digital transformation. I can kind of lump them, Brian, probably into four buckets, and we can kind of talk about some of them if you'd like me to in more detail. I would say. Uh, you're finding data privacy regulation or data privacy reform 
and security related to private or sensitive information driving a lot of the innovation. So I would say that's a huge trend, and we can talk about how that 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 uh, is involved. Number two, I would say that, and we're going to see this probably more with the Biden administration coming into place, but investigations and enforcement actions are really on the rise and how organizations use technology to help proactively and even reactively respond to those uh, regulatory demands are, are a key consideration. And then, and then you're seeing a lot on third-party risk right now with a growing complex ecosystem, I would say, with COVID um, and, and shortened supplies, uh, different suppliers in need, there's been some corners that may have been cut, right, to meet demand. And so, you know, third-party onboarding and due diligence is an area. And then I would say the other area which I'm quite fascinated with is engendering trust and social consciousness as a uh, key part of the compliance agenda. Um, And, you know, you can listen to, I don't know if, I think it was Biden, talk about, you know, the threats to the environment, right, As as a national security threat or interest, you're seeing much more legislation focused on things of that nature. But data privacy, I would say, is where I've been heavily focused. I don't know if you want me to share a little bit of some of what what I've been following, and maybe your community would be interested in hearing some of this. Yeah, I think data privacy is something that a lot of uh, the listeners are probably thinking about, especially as it pertains to uh, outward things like GDPR, CCPA, um, and kind of how they need to go about um, the, their go-to-market strategy. But uh, but yeah, if you could share a little bit uh, deeper around what that reform is starting to look like. Yeah, sure. Let me, let me just kind of share some really unbelievable trends that we're seeing. Number one, when you talk about, you know, the GDPR, and most people know that, you know, it's a regulation that requires businesses um, to protect personal data and the privacy of their EU citizens for transactions that occur really within these member states. Um, When you look at that, that was passed in, in 2018. Since then, so many countries around the world have been inspired to strengthen their existing laws or their new privacy regulations. I, there was a Gartner study that that came out that said 65% of the world's population is going to be covered by data privacy regulations by 2023. And I remember when I read that, Brian, I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, you know, it seems a, a little bit of a stretch. But when you look at what's going on, Brazil passed their data uh, general data protection law that went into effect actually the end of this past year. And Brazil's what, like the sixth most populous country around the world. And you have China and in uh, India with some omnibus privacy laws that are very close to being enacting. Right? Well, and cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they, they follow the citizen around the globe where they go too? It's not just if you're, if you're in country, but if you're a resident or a citizen of that country and you travel, it follows you as well. Right? In, so- in some instances, I, there's extraterritoriality. It's really mostly, though, for if you look at GDPR, it's much more focused on on whether you are actually, you know, capturing personal information of a resident in the EU. If you're doing some travel to the U.S., some of the there are some exceptions and changes, and whether there'll be coverage. But it's really more about who you're, you know, who you're marketing to. Are you providing the right notification? Right, the right instructions around informing people what's being collected from those countries. So, part of it would be if you're, you know, let's say a U.S. business and you're doing doing business with uh, in Brazil with a Brazilian uh, customer, 
then you have to deal with extraterritoriality issues covered by that particular regulation. And it's interesting too, you know, Canada has had, um, they have uh, the Privacy Act, which is actually governs personal informational handling practices of federal institutions, right? That That's clearly important for your audience base, but they also have PIPEDA, which is more on the commercial side. And right now there's changes being proposed. There's a Digital Tar- Charter Implementation Act that right now is being proposed to replace PIPEDA with a lot more comprehensive uh, enhancements to, to individuals' rights, as well as greater enforcement capabilities. I, I think U.S. is really the most interesting, right? We, we, t- we talk about all those changes around the world, and data privacy is a complete global concern. But if you look today, there are a couple states that have passed comprehensive data privacy laws, really only a few. Uh, Nevada, Maine, California probably gets the most press, right? Everyone talks about the California Consumer Privacy Act that went into effect in January of 2020. Uh, enforcement began in July. And actually, I don't know, Brian, if you're if you're aware of this or your audience knows, but at the election, California voters passed uh, the California Privacy Act and Enfor- uh, Rights and Enforcement Act, which is known as CIPRA, which is amending some of the parts of the existing CCPA. And those changes are going to go into effect in January of 2023. Um, they just expand coverage. Uh, they give greater consumer rights protections. But I think what's happening, and you'll read about this a lot, with all these changes, with proposed uh um, data privacy laws in, in, in many legislative bodies today, considering them, there's a lot of talk about whether the U.S. is going to undergo uh, federal privacy regulation. Um, real, real fascinating subject. It's sort of maybe been on, on pause a bit, but I think when you, when you look right now, I, I don't have the exact tally, Brian, but I would say there's like a number of different bills that have been introduced in the House. And in the Senate, um, they they vary somewhat in terms of who is covered, but they all focus on covering individual rights, uh, control of personal information, um, and also discuss you know how does that work in terms of preempting state privacy rights and other enforcement. So it's re- it's really fascinating where we're going here. Um, yeah, you know. And- so I, I remember you and I actually started uh, from a data privacy perspective. You and I started working on something um, like a year and a half ago um, when I was kind of building uh, a presentation for a conference and kind of looking at uh, data privacy from a law enforcement perspective. And it, it was really interesting to see how much or, or how many rights we actually really do have. But the, the biggest thing that shocked me was the gray area because technology has really advanced so far that some of these regulations are just lagging behind. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, everybody knows technology is kind of innovating at just a rapid rate. So to build a policy around this new technology is really difficult. In terms of, uh, of trends and challenges, is that something you see continuing? Or, or what, what are you seeing from a technology perspective really driving these policies? It's it's a great question. I, I I think right now everyone is trying to grapple with the importance of you know surveillance, right? Or or understand. Um, if we go back to the GDPR, for instance, right, which has really broad coverage around collecting information around EU citizens, it's not just 
you know, private sector, right? But public sector that has obligations. And there always there there were built into the GDPR certain exemptions around the public interest, right? Where you don't need consent, where you can so processing things that are necessary for the public interest. If there are legal teams or courts that are acting in a judicial capacity. Right, there would have the ability to take information that's been collected and used, and in, and you're seeing it much more in the area of public health, right, with COVID, right, in terms of what information is necessary, right, for organizations to use or to share, you know, to track, you know, contact tracing, right, a good example, but a lot of the laws today focused on protecting like biometric information, uh, things where new technology is coming into play. And I think I think it's fascinating because there's this balance that the world is looking at between what is needed for law enforcement, right, to do their jobs and to protect yeah. society, versus you know what what rights do a consumer have? I, I, my personal take at the end of the day is it's really when you look at the global world reform around data privacy, it's all about making sure people understand how organizations are using their information. Right, as simple as that, and you're seeing it like when you talk about the CCPA, which which really doesn't implicate you know the public sector much. It's really more for 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 profit entities. It's really all about you know organizations that are capitalizing right on information and using and selling right content uh, and 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 deriving revenue. I'm not saying in every instance, but in a lot of instances, particularly with CCPA, and you need to understand that organizations are always going to capture, you know, personal information. And then it's just a question of how do you build that in either into the regulations or start to, you know, accommodate those needs from law enforcement. I mean, uh, look, look at what we saw at the Capitol. Yeah. It blows blows my mind. I mean, you and I were just talking about the, and now the, the FBI is soliciting, um, folks for social media images, videos, anything on their phone, um, to create kind of a, a mesh network of imagery that they can use facial recognition on. But then at the same time, where does privacy, data privacy or, or PII really stand in the way of law enforcement being able to hold some of these folks accountable? It's, it's crazy. A- absolutely. And, and it's like anything in law, right? Like when I think about it from my days as a lawyer, it's all a balancing act, right? There's, you know, th- there's some level of case by case determination, right? And, and judges are, are there to look at provisions and whether, you know, something is in the interest of public safety, right? There, there, that has to be uh, adjudicated, right? And things of that nature. So it, it def- definitely comes into play. What's also really fascinating, what I've seen, just sort of switching gears a bit for a second, Brian, is we were talking about sort of antiquated processes, right? And the, you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier about manual processes. And when you look at a lot of the data privacy reform and the technology today, because of these regulations, because these regulations require a tremendous amount of recording of, of information. So for instance, when you think about the GDPR, you're talking a lot about um, consent management, right? Um defining what kind of information you're keeping. Do you have a legal basis to process it? That goes exactly back to what you just mentioned before, right? If you're an organization and you're capturing information for a limited purpose, being able to record that and understand that there might be certain exceptions, right, that are that are in the best interest of society, then you need to document when there may be an acceptable use of that. And then there are other sort of records management capabilities that are built into data privacy, data minimization, Right, the ability to ensure that you're only keeping information for as long as you need it, 
right? And then, um, but one thing I do wanted to mention, I just think you and I have talked about this in the past, is um, other applications of what organizations are using for technology around data privacy. So a lot of organizations to to deal with strict deadlines, right, to meet requirements. So if you're a consumer and you request an, request a copy of the information that's being held, uh, your personal information within an organization, under a lot of these, you know, omnibus data privacy laws, you have the right to request or access information, right? And we know how difficult, and this is a challenge, I think, with public sector too, and even with FOIA, Brian, Right. Yeah. When, when you're dealing with the ability to respond to high demand requests and a lot of organizations that, that we work at at OpenText, right, where we're promoting, you know, case management tools around managing or operationalizing your privacy program is around things like responding to those requests. Right. Organizations are slow. It's manual. It's error prone. Right. Well, and, and things like FOIA have deadlines on them, too. I mean, there's, there's time time constraints. Um, we look at like constituent case management um, as as uh, organizations within government have to respond, not just for information requests, but um, being able to just respond to simple inquiries um, beyond just a formalized FOIA request. Even those have deadlines on them. So. Uh, it, it it can be daunting when you're dealing with some of these some of these groups that are still dealing with paper. Oh yeah, uh, to be able to manage all of these deadlines and at the same time the inundation uh, of requests just is piling on top of each other. But isn't that the beauty of the technology, right? That you can digitize, you can provide some intelligence, right, and classify this information so that when these requests come in. You can not only have an easy process to, you know, validate that the request is appropriate, right, and fulfill the needs, including levels of automation. I mean, think about uh, the requests that they all, you know, in a lot of instances, you're going to respond, but you're going to need to redact key information, right? So you have all sorts of different technology capabilities. But we're seeing that a lot more, too, when you were asking me a little bit about go-to-market with data privacy, right, and how we support clients. Not only is just managing those cases, but understanding when those same tools can support other use cases. So like in the instance of when you're dealing with public sector, uh, dealing with, you know, FOIA is a great example, right? A lot of that same technology or workflow is applicable, in both in both those circumstances, so just a just a, th- a thought or a point I wanted to share. I think the other thing that that data privacy has really done is it's 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 focused, especially with the GDPR, on on building solutions and systems with privacy, you know, by design, which takes into account a lot of security safeguards and making sure that organizations have appropriate and adequate security based on their risk profile, so that they can meet regulatory requirements. And I think. You know, one of the areas that I had mentioned to you before in in the trends was talking about, you know, cybersecurity, you know, as part of that in data privacy. But we're we're seeing such a rise. I'm sure you're dealing with it all the time in 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 public sector discussions. But I would say it's probably the largest discussion I have is, you know, how do compliance departments monitor, you know, employee conduct? Right and and remote work workforce, but we're also seeing so much of a concern around supply chain uh, being under siege. I know um, that that's an interesting topic. Um, Let me ask you this, Andy, yeah, sure, sure. especially when it comes to security. Yeah. Um, FedRAMP, as you know, is uh, kind of a cloud security measure uh, certification organizations go through, um, and recently it, it, there was a proposal. Um, uh, within Congress to be able to make FedRAMP a law. 
beyond just a uh, a strict requirement, but actually pushing it into a law. Do you see these some of these other compliance measures um, like FISMA, like CMMC, and perhaps others being pushed um, pushed to that level where where they will be law? I think we may have to go that direction. You know, do, do, thinking about recent events, I mean, solar winds, right? Yeah. The, this, uh, I was just thinking about that before getting on your call, you know, where you had hackers that are alleged to be working for, you know, Russian government. <laughs> so you have these international espionage going on. And in that instance, just for those of you who may not be that aware, you had incidents of a compromise to SolarWinds network monitoring software, right? A big breach across computer systems at numerous federal agencies, right? I mean, we saw that all the time. I think once they got into the network, they continued exploiting, uh, installing exploitation tools, they were able to connect to customer Office 365 accounts, right? And really sort of go through and compromise the federal government. I think, Brian, it was like the U.S. Commerce and Treasury Department, Department of Homeland Security, NIH, yeah. State Department. So, the, you know, the time when you – raising a question, I think we're, we're at a point right now where we have a new form of war and we have to do everything possible to make sure that we are satisfying the highest levels of cybersecurity. I was thinking – I, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that when the DOD was first thinking about NIST, you know, the 800-171, I think a lot of that came on the heels of some Chinese cyber spies stealing some U.S. military designs or something to that effect, right? And, and so and, they and put that's it, why I'm, I'm a big fan of the CMMC program is it's really trying to solidify the defense industrial base from the top down and Absolutely. making sure there is uniformity there. So things like that don't happen. I mean, you have nation states trying to steal IP, hack in and, um, and, and just create chaos and being able to ensure security is important. I mean, I talked in, in the opening around as technology advances and, and as some of these expectations continue to increase, the government is placing more and more trust in the organizations they do business with. And as such, I think that's going to be one of the biggest drivers of the, the regulatory and compliance measures that are being put out there. I mean, I look at solar winds as a cat, you know, an impetus. Yeah. Perfect you know, example. It's like, give me, you know, you go out there and, and like, so the reason I was raising that is that you, you, I think you saw an adherence to NIST, right? Way back, maybe it was 2017 or somewhere around that time, 2018, because of these kind of attacks, right? We've seen the sophistication levels rising so on uh, such an unprecedented level now that, you know, think about it, right? With NIST, there was a lot more self-assessment of your systems, right? To bring into compliance, right? And then you have, you know, CMMC here, which, you know, at this point, it really singles an end to the industry having a, a self-compliance period. Right. Um, so you're going to have these certification requirements and standards that are, you know, taking into account what I believe, you know, are the most important controls when you're when you're looking at, you know, cybersecurity levels. I mean, it, it, when you think of like CMMC and again, I'm not an, a, an expert in this area, but, you know, in order to do business, you have you have to do this, <laughs> you know, for for right for the DOD, for contractors. But I think if you put this pressure or you go to this kind of high level or the highest, most stringent cyber level, that that is going to be the standard in order to work with the government that has the most sensitive and, and critical information. Right. So it'll it'll be interesting to see where 
we move in that direction. But I think past history sort of indicates, you know, where where we're at. And I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of fines, you know, will result if 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 organizations claim, you know, to to meet these standards or or if they have poor security standards. I guess the FTC has some authority. You know, around you know, forcing you know, uh, forcing fines, doing uh, annual audits to demonstrate cybersecurity compliance. I, I don't know how that will totally play out with CMMC, um, since they are you know a, a certification around that. But in general, just with cybersecurity, I think you're seeing you're seeing a total shift in behavior. And I do think Brian, you're correct that we might see a law put into place or a series of laws, depending on what uh, what kind of information you possess. Yeah. And I I think right now CMMC is a DOD initiative, but it's absolutely proliferating into the the federal civilian space. And um, I I would expect that to continue with a lot of these. I want to shift gears a little bit because we've talked a lot about compliance measures that organizations need to adhere to, um, especially data privacy, et cetera. But I I do want to talk now about some of the compliance measures that actually drive strategy. Um, and how they go about doing business with the government. Um, records management is something you've touched on. Mm-hmm. Uh, NARA M1921 is a records management um, initiative that government needs to adhere to and as such needs to um, put procurement initiatives in place to I- ensure they adhere to it. So it drives strategy for people that want to do, mar- do marketing or, or business with the government. Are, are there others that you know about or, or how are you helping um, drive some of that strategy uh, for government to help adhere to it. It's a good question. Um, I think I think that when part of the strategy or part of what we're seeing, and I don't know if this answers your questions completely, Brian, but we're seeing a much more expanded view on records management today in go to market um, in light of digitization. Um, P- information governance, I had mentioned it earlier, is sort of this broader term. But I would say when what you're seeing is messaging that that focus is not just on classification of records, right, and digitization, getting yourself in a position where you can protect your information, you know, put it into a secure content repository, you know, show traceability, create audit reports. But part of it is really much more about compliance, right? What happens if you don't have those records? You know, what, what are the risks to your organization if you don't have controls in place around those records? And we, we, we are seeing much more of a focus around looking at records management with a broader eye on its impact cross-departmentally. So a lot of our messaging, you know, when you're talking, let's say you're working with an organization about getting your, getting your records management in order. Right, based on certain directives, or getting your, your records uh, r- records lined up so that they're digitally managed in a much more um, uh, capable of being reported environment. We're looking so much more now at how do we incorporate broader needs of other departments into how data is managed. So, for instance, as an example, with legal. And this may be a little bit different with the government, se- with with the private sector, but w- those records managements need to incorporate other elements to ensure compliance with other initiatives or investigations. So the ability to find information rapidly, the ability to ensure that you can uh, basically prevent deletion of data, 
based on its records retention cycles associated with uh, litigation, with investigations and legal hold. So I would say as part of part of what you're seeing now with a lot of organizations is taking the concept of records management and ensuring that organizations understand a broader need around overall governance so that you not only satisfy, let's say, the directive if it's NERA, you know, M1921, uh, M or but also making sure that you can satisfy other departmental needs around that same information. When I think it speaks to a maturity in terms of a, a go-to-market strategy, it, even beyond records management, whatever, and, and we talk all the time about public sector, it really feels like a horizontal industry because there's so many different verticals, whether you're dealing with Department of Energy mm-hmm. or Department of Agri, no matter what you're doing, and then they all have different subsets. So you could be working with with folks doing legal, HR, et cetera, and you need to know your industry within the public sector, know that subset and what those compliance initiatives yeah. and measures are that they're trying to adhere to, and that's going to drive strategy. And I've had numerous conversations with with government leadership uh, just on this podcast alone, mm-hmm. where, and they're all asking for folks to be true partners. And I think this is one way yep. that you can be a true partner, understand their pain points, understand that they might have a deadline or a timeline that they are seeking to adhere to these directives and policies, know what those policies are, help them get on that timeline. And now you're really helping them accomplish some of their true pain points. I think that's right. I think it's really important. I mentioned earlier when I, back in my days when I was doing risk assessments, right, or current state assessments, when we were, you were asking me a bit about my career and how I got where I am, that's a big part of it, right, is understanding what those organizational needs, you know, your, your levels of security or your requirements are slightly different, obviously, based on the different organization you are, the different departments that are coming into play, right? What, what, what kind of data is being held within those departments? But I, I really do think the big shift, and I saw this also with legal in general, is this much more cross-functional collaborative group that are engaged in initiatives. So it's, it, it's very hard just to sort of compartmentalize and say, oh, you know, we have a records management initiative. Yeah, there are organizations who are thinking around it, from that narrow perspective. But if you're an enterprise or you're an organization that is trying to solve multiple data management issues, you have to be aligned much broader. You have to bring in your data privacy, your CISO, you know, your your other IT representatives, your risk management department, your legal officer into those discussions to understand how those technologies can actually support each other or whether there is a dependency right from one department based on an action that you that you put in place for managing data does that have um, an adverse in, impact on one other organization or does it frustrate the ability of another department to perform their job and meet those organizational goals so there there's a lot of interesting things that can come out of it but that i think that's a big a big change you know this broader broader information governance shift in thinking around records management and compliance so this has been a really interesting conversation. And I think if I took anything away from it, and hopefully my listeners did too, the, the level of complexity within uh, regula- regulation and compliance is immense. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I mentioned at the top of the show, I really think uh, an individual like yourself um, will be kind of uh, kind of boilerplate table stakes at, an or- at uh, any organization because it's so important to understand the ins and outs 
um, to help a, a marketer, a, a sales team, uh, frankly, a, executive leadership understand all the different compliance measures that the organization either needs to adhere to or help other organizations or governments adhere to. So um, I appreciate you being on to kind of walk us through some of those and the importance of the role. Any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with today? Well, I, I mean, I, I think there are a, a bunch of other areas that we haven't covered. I, I, I would say on a very high level that we are really going, in my opinion, to see a real rise in enforcement actions, investigations, looking at fraud, looking at claims. We've already talked a bit about cybersecurity. I wanted to raise the idea that with the CARES Act, right, and the collaboration of enforcement bodies, you know, like the CFPB or DOJ, FBI, there's there's going to be significant actions within organizations. So the sooner that you can get your data uh, management underway, the better, the, the more that you can start looking at technology that's out there, analytic technology that can create greater insight into the information, let's say patterns of behaviors of individuals and organization. Or even tools that, like Brian and I were talking before, you know, I don't have to review boxes anymore, right? I can go <laughs> use these platforms to meet obligations, right? But using these kind of tools today, you need to be out in front to respond to those demands. So I would say, you know, it's we we're, we have a real change in the regulatory climate right now. Organizations really need to start getting out in front of those issues, whether it's enforcement actions, whether it's third-party risk and due diligence technologies, whether it's data privacy concerns or cybersecurity. And uh, thanks, Brian, so much for having me on the show. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again, maybe on a, on a more narrow topic as well down the road. Excellent. Thanks again for being on, Andy. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.